The state of higher education is tumultuous. Not a single week goes by without some story of political activism, unjust cancellation, campus protest, etc. hitting the news. Our universities really don't have to be like this. Rolston College aims to reshape this landscape. Alongside its MA in the humanities, Rolston is launching a summer school teaching Latin in Sicily, Rome and other sites. The program, running from July to September, offers immersive language learning with experts, literary reading, seminars and even archaeological visits. Most importantly, this course is designed for people who have never studied Latin. Anyone in the world can apply, and the strongest applicants will be awarded full scholarships that cover the cost of the entire program. Apply by the 31st of May at rolston.ac forward slash Latin dash program. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissin, and a very warm welcome to our special first episode from the new studio on the set you can see behind us. We've done a great interview about all things to do with the past, the present, and the future of the show, including talking about our personal lives and some of the background to where the show comes from, including Francis' worst ever gig. And then at the back, I heard the word yid, 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 and Constantin gets a little bit emotional. It, it was the end of a very difficult 10 days. And I went into my room when it got confirmed and I started crying. We talk about the lowest lows and the highest highs in the history of the show. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissin. And welcome to our first interview in our brand new studio. We're going to be doing things a little bit differently this week because what we're going to be doing is interviewing each other about the journey of trigonometry. Indeed, uh, we're going to talk about where we've come from and possibly where we're going as well. But the first thing to say is apologies for these terrible moustaches. We are raising money for Prostate Cancer UK. Uh, the donation uh, box will be there somewhere. Anton will probably get it sorted by the time this goes out. So if you can support this great cause, please do, because, uh, you know, men need support. Exactly. Particularly white men. Anyway. Good. Well done, mate. <laughs> But anyway, uh, I've been looking forward to this. Mm. I've been really looking forward to this because it's a chance. It's it's therapy, isn't it? That's is it? what this is. Yeah, of course it is. Okay, mate. We're, we're both on the couch. You know, it'll appeal to you because it's free. Uh, anyway, I can't believe I said that. Mm. Yeah, so we Good. started. Yeah. I deliberately didn't laugh to make it awkward. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Thank you very much. Rather like my gig on Wednesday night. Now, uh, we started trigonometry in 2018. April, April 2018. But what, the, what, I think one of the things that people don't really know is a lot of the background stuff mm. because, you know, we haven't talked about it very much. But l let's start with where we were before we started the show. So you were a working comedian. Yes. Mostly hosting shows rather than doing sets. You were doing sets as well, but you, you focused on hosting shows at, you know, some of the best clubs in London, admittedly. Mm. But you were performing there. You, you weren't traveling so much around the country. You weren't doing your own shows to, to your own audience, which you, neither of us had at the time. Mm -hmm. um, what was that like? It was, on the one hand, it, it was quite good because I worked really hard to get to that point. It's, uh, comedy is fiercely competitive. It's not fair. So by hook or by crook, by working really hard, I got to the point where I was playing some of these really great clubs on a Friday and Saturday night to hundreds of people every night. I was an MC because there, there was a part of it that I really enjoyed. I It's unscripted, so you can be improvisational. You can have fun with the audience. No gig is ever the same. Uh, it meant that I didn't have to travel. But what it was effectively was a cul-de-sac. 
we and once in comedy, once you get pigeonholed as being an MC or a host, that's really it. You just get known as being an MC, which is actually quite narrow-minded and stupid of the industry and the people in it, because some of the best comedians were MCs. You know, Daniel Kitson is a good example, or Michael McIntyre did a lot of MCing. So it, it's it's at one point ridiculous, but also that's what it was like. But I also I would argue you pigeonholed yourself. Wouldn't that be fair to say? Because you kept doing these MCing gigs it meant that you didn't have time to go out and try as much new material to play in front of a different audience, stuff like that. So I'd push back on that. And the reason I push back on that is because I don't come, I'm not come, I don't come from a wealthy family, which means I had to earn money. I'm not saying you were wrong to do it, but you, I, what I mean is I think partly the reason you ended up in that position mm. is you put yourself in that position, maybe for very good reasons. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, look, it, it was for very good reasons, but the reality is, is comedy is a rich man's game. It is, and people well, life is a rich man's, man's game. Yeah, but you know, particularly if you want to get ahead in the comedy industry, you've got to be able to go up to Edinburgh four or five times. If you want to get noticed, really, you need to spend ten grand a pop. That was never an option for me. I had to earn money. So, but yeah, there was an element of that. There was an element of that of you know not wanting to travel, and as a result, it was a shortcut. But like all shortcuts. It inevitably leads somewhere where you don't want to be, so... Well, there's another part to your story because not only were you doing... You were emceeing, hosting these shows six yeah. nights a week, so you were there the whole night. Mm. So basically every night you're around rowdy, drunk people performing comedy. And then, quite often, you would then go and do the radio overnight. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. I did talk sport radio. So I did overnights at talk sport, yeah. which meant... Uh, some days I would do a full day teaching, then I'd go and MC a gig, sometimes MC two gigs back to back, and then I'd go and do overnight radio till about five in the morning. Right. And sometimes you'd do that and then you'd go to bed. Yeah. And then you'd wake up and you'd go and teach. Yeah. In, because you were still a part time teacher yeah, at this yeah. point. Yeah. Oh, so I'd go in and I'd teach and I was a part time teacher. Or I'd do br uh, breakfast shows at talk radio where the cab came at half five, quarter past five, and then you've got to be in the studio at half six. And if you've been emceeing the night before, particularly if it's rowdy, you don't get to fall asleep till about two o'clock in the morning because you're all adrenaline up out of your eyeballs. Yeah, it was, you know, it was relentless, but that's what you've got to do in that industry if you want to succeed. Yeah. It, yeah. It's the or only if you just want to survive. Yeah, if you want to survive, exactly. And And, and the problem with that particular model is that it's not sustainable. You can't have a good life. Your relationships suffer. Your health suffers. And I remember at one point, uh, I got an eczema flare-up so bad that it looked like uh, I had uh, like red blotches. You know how AIDS patients at the end stage, they used to get something called... Not Car really, mate, but... Carposi sarcoma. Yeah. But that's what, they were dark red blotches. Dark red. And I remember being on the tube because I was so run down and tired and there was this girl opposite me and she was looking at me and I'm like ah oh, she likes me and no she was just staring at my arm which was covered with these red going, oh sexy he's an AIDS patient <laughs> yeah, Good. yeah. Mm. and in fact it yum got, yum yum exactly and in fact it got so bad with my eczema on my skin and I was shedding skin so much this isn't probably what people tuned in for that my girlfriend said to me could you not sleep on my side of the bed because that's how bad my skin was so I was really unwell, 
I was working frenetically. And also I was very frustrated because, you know, I would go to a gig, I would do very well. You know, I was I was starting to open for people, but nobody in the interest industry wanted to sign me. No one showed any attention whatsoever. You were never going to be on TV. I was never going to be on TV. I was never going to have an inverted commas a mainstream career, and it and it and it felt that I was, why why because I I was a, I was a straight white dude in his mid thirties at that point when the industry was all about diversity. I was also as well didn't have didn't share the same political views as people in that industry. You were fairly you were fairly uh, circumspect about that at that point. Yeah. Right. You weren't expressing your political opinions no. on, openly. I think. No, I wasn't expressing my political opinions openly, but I didn't share, you know, the comedy industry's hyper liberal attitudes to culture, to gender, to all all these things. Right. And and what's very interesting about that is when I was eighteen, nineteen. You could say that I had liberal slash even woke opinions, but the way that the culture shifted was in the industry, I was sort of known as a small C conservative or conservative or right leaning when I've never considered myself like that at all. And and I got really frustrated because I saw the hypocrisy and the bias within comedy where people who have left wing liberal opinions will get platformed. Mm will get given a chance to shine. It doesn't matter how ridiculous these opinions are. And you can see it, you know, right the way through the BBC. You know, Frankie Ball's New World Order isn't really a comedy show. It's more like a left-wing propaganda, you know, fanzine that you might find in the old school Soviet Union. You know, with people sitting, sitting around and talking. And the comedy industry says they want diversity. They don't want diversity. They want people of all races, genders and ages and colours to be on stage having the exact same opinion. So here you are basically in the comedy industry, in a cul-de-sac creatively, yeah. in a cul-de-sac financially, in a mm. cul-de-sac in every way. Yeah. Your health is going down the toilet. You, you're, you're barely sleeping. You're doing yeah. overnight radio. You're teaching. Uh, yeah. And you're not really in love with teaching anymore, I think, no, at this point, no, it's fair to no, say. No, right? And then I come along <laughs> and I'm like, hey, let's do a podcast that's going to get us cancelled. Well, here's the thing. Uh, I originally, you said, do you want to do a podcast? And I was like, no, because I had a podcast. It didn't work out. It was very good, but we, we went on different ways for a multitude of reasons. It just didn't work. Well, people, it, it, given that we've had Nick on the show, yeah. right? we might say that you did a podcast with Nick Dixon, one of our recent guests, yeah. and it didn't work out because creatively you just didn't gel. Yeah, exactly. And so that happened, and then I got offered a, a podcast with TalkSport, we had a pilot. And this is what's interesting. This is what people don't know about radio and TV. So we, we did a pilot for them. And the guy and the head of TalkSport went, this is brilliant. This is exactly what is needed in sports radio. It's three comedians talking about comedy. This is exactly what's needed. He then gave us about a list of 12 changes, which we incorporated. We gave him another version of the pilot. And he went, no, I don't like it. And that was it. And, and that's what you're faced with in the industry, where you have great ideas and people at the top are fucking clueless and they've got no idea. Now, of course, there's exceptions and there's people who have talent. Of course there are. But there's a lot of people in that industry, both from radio, you know, all type, different types of broadcasting, who don't have a clue what they're doing. And then there was this sense of frustration. You went to me, do you want to do a podcast? And I thought to myself, it's a lot of work. It's a hell of a lot of work to do a podcast. It's a hell of a lot of work to do a YouTube show. If you're going to do it, you've got to be all in. 
You've got to do it properly. You've got to be consistent. You've got to, you've got to bring something new to the table as well. This is what people don't realise. Like when comedians release a comedy podcast, they're like, oh, what, why is no one listening to my comedy podcast? It's funny. Well, it may be funny, but what's different about it? Are you just going to be another maker of jeans on the market? Well, there's loads of people who make jeans. What's different about your jeans? So when we talked about trigonometry and you were saying to me, well, I think that this has got legs and, and whatever else, because we're talking to people, interesting people. I thought to myself, actually, that's something different. That's something that people can get on board with. And as well, a watershed moment for me was the whole Brexit referendum, where Brexit happened, and then the next day, I saw a whole cohort of people in my industry who thought it, who, who now came out and thought it was acceptable to demonise, to mock, to smear people with different political opinions. And not only that, and they would disagree with this, but it's true, they found it absolutely acceptable to be racist to white men, but particularly old white men. And they would say things like, oh, what does it matter? He's just an old white man. And for you, that was particularly painful because you voted Remain, but your your dad, who is a straight old white man, mm, yeah. presumably. That's how he identifies. Yeah, exactly. He, him. He, him. <laughs> uh, he voted Leave, I think, right? Yeah, he voted Leave. And he is not someone who is in any way any of those things. He's not racist. He's not bigoted or whatever. Yeah. So to you, it was a very visceral reaction, I think. Yeah. And, I, and my, my dad married a woman of colour in the... My mother, who's Latin American... Brown bird. Brown bird, mate. Fucking brown. Fucking ethnic. Right? <laughs> I can say it. She's my mum. Pronouns, she, her. And he when it wasn't cool in the 70s, mm. when there was no Snapchat filter or, you know, hashtag mixed race or whatever, all of these different things. So this is not a man who's intolerant. This is a man who doesn't like... The, foreigners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Different foreigners. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> just don't like Polish people. Mate. Exactly, mate. Brown birds good, Poles wrong. No, who just disagreed with the politics of the European right, Union. Right. Yeah. And which to me is a perfectly legitimate political position. So, Mike, well, what I'm getting at with you is you're knackered, you're working overtime, you're not necessarily, you've got to a decent place, mm. but you're not going any further. Yeah. Uh, the, and then you, you, you feel out of out of kilter with the rest of the comedy circuit mm. that you're operating in, which is your world at this point, yeah. right? Because really, when you're a comedian, the way, I don't know whether it's the sort of people that are attracted to comedy mm. or whether comedy makes you this way, but people won't necessarily get this. But when you are a comedian, your whole life becomes that. Oh, right? And I'm sure we'll talk about that when we talk about my experience. But you are all in, all your quote-unquote friends are in comedy, your yeah. whole life is in comedy, yeah. and suddenly this world that you're, you've been living in for the last 10 years, it becomes a place that you consider intolerant, wrong, in which you feel out of place, you're not necessarily feeling like you're going anywhere, and at this point, I come along and we go, okay, let's do this, right? Yeah. And I don't know if you remember this, but you said, when I suggested it to you, you agreed, and then the next day you called me up, and you said that you'd had a nosebleed, which again is a reflection of your health yeah. at this point, right? Um, and you said, you know what, Constance, maybe you should just do this yourself. Do you remember yeah. this? Yeah, 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 because I had a, a nosebleed and it was so bad it needed my girlfriend to, to help staunch the bleeding. Because it, it was, I was, at that point, I've actually forgotten about this, I was getting regular nosebleeds at the time. I remember I took my girlfriend to the theatre as a treat for her 
and I had to leave at one point because I had to go to the bathroom because my nose was bleeding so heavily, which isn't a good look for a man in his early to mid thirties, mm. you know. Mm. He's getting younger by the by the sentence, <laughs> yeah, isn't he? He yeah. started off mid thirties, now he's early thirties. Yeah, exactly. Mate, it was three years ago. You yeah. were late thirties yeah, by that no, point I wasn't, already. I was I, anyway. Right. So your health wasn't great, and you called me up and you were like, you know what? I, I'm not sure I can do this. And it's because it's capacity. I just yeah. didn't have yeah, any yeah, capacity. Yeah. No, no, I know, I know. I just didn't have the capacity for something new, for a new project, for wanting to take something on like this. And you were, and you were like, and you were said to me, okay, that's cool, go away and think about it. And I remember speaking to my girlfriend at the time, bless her, a lovely person, and she said to me, you know, I like Constantine, steak. Uh, I think you should do this. And I think it would be good for you. And from then, when we started doing it, I remember our first interview, we got some great advice actually from Simon Kane, who's a big fan of the show, uh, who's a podcaster himself. He said to us, record a, a, a dummy episode, essentially. You know. So we got Finn Taylor in, who's a marvelous comedian. We sat down, we talked. And then you, because and, and it all it looked terrible. It sounded terrible. terrible. Everything about it was terrible. Yeah, everything about it was shit. And we couldn't put it out. No, we couldn't put it out. But I remember the conversation being quite interesting. Yeah, the conversation was interesting. Yeah, and then but you, I was like, is this is this good? And you were like, no, visually, because you were very much a child of Ruben and Rogan. You were like, no, we have to change this. It has to look good. It has to look professional. See, I I've never really consumed YouTube in any shape or form at that point. I just didn't have the time, and that wasn't my world. And you were like, no, we have to do this. And I remember you banging on about lapel mics. I was like, what? I don't understand. Why? Why can't we just have microphones? You know, when you go, when we go and do radio, that's that's how it was. How is this different to radio? And that's where the journey started. And and from then on in, it's and we'll go into it more. It's it's just been an absolute roller coaster of things that are really bizarre and surreal. From you appearing, well, hold hold off on that. Yeah, we'll get to to the later bits first. Yeah. Uh, let me talk about uh, my st- yeah, my situation yeah, before yeah. leading into it. So I started doing comedy around mid two thousand fifteen, twenty fifteen. Uh, I did a, like a short course yeah. about how to write jokes and stuff, and then I started doing it. And I, I think towards probably about 2016, 2017, I started watching a lot of Ruben, yeah. uh, uh, Rogan, and just I became aware politically that something was happening. And I remember, and this will this will sound really odd because I voted Remain. And because we're good people, because we're you know that that used to be the, the joke that we used to make three years ago, mate. Keep up with the material, but uh, I so I still had that very liberal mindset yeah. in many ways, and I still do to this yeah. day. You know, I, I'm genuinely a liberal yeah. in, in the traditional sense of it. But I remember during the run up to the Brexit referendum, I probably watched, and a lot of people who hate us are going to take this bit and run with it. I probably watched every single speech that Nigel Farage gave in the lead up to that mm. campaign. Because I think at some level, I was already starting to realize that there was a piece missing in my picture of yeah. the world. Mm. And I've always been someone who's very curious about life and politics and the world. And I I'm, I was trying to get to what the truth is, even mm. if it doesn't necessarily accord with what I already believe. Yeah. So I started watching it. And the more I did, you know, and I was terrified of this. Mm. I was terrified of, of what I was going through mm. because I remember I watched Dave Rubin for two years before I clicked subscribe on his YouTube <laughs> channel. Why? Because I was afraid of what other comedians would, yeah. if, if they knew, 
if I liked his Facebook page, if they saw this. That's how the comedy industry works. Yeah. Everybody's watching everybody and you're worried about the repercussions. So at that point, I was terrified just to admit that I'm looking at something, the wrong thing thing, you know. Uh, but my life at that point was probably as as hard as yours. I was, I was working in some ways... Ev- I was going to say even harder. It's not fair to say that even harder, but I was doing other things that made my life harder, which is you were gigging mainly in London. I was not living in London Mm. and I would be gigging in London and elsewhere. So my typical day before trigonometry would be do a full day of work Mm. because I was not making enough money to to live off because it takes years in comedy to get to that point. I'd do a full day of work, jump in the car, drive for two hours – do five minutes or 10 minutes at some shitty gig with two people in the audience, drive home for two hours, get home for midnight. You can't sleep because your adrenaline is, you know, keeping you awake. You you eat some shit, right? You go to bed at two, wake up at 11 feeling like you've been smashed in the head with a mallet all night, right? And then go again. What was your worst ever gig? See, it's interesting because I don't really remember these bad gigs because... I'll be honest with you, and we'll get to it later. Even when our our life was starting to really get good in many ways, you know, the the bit I really remember was not a bad gig. It was a a great moment in my life, which when I, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, when Trigonometry was going well, my contract situation had already happened, and I was opening for Jeff Norcott, Mm. who's since become a good friend, and he was always very supportive to me. And, you know, for, for people who are not aware, at this point, for me, opening for Jeff was like a huge opportunity. Of course it is. And so, and other things were already happening and trigonometry was doing well. And this was the day when I opened for Jeff two nights in a row. Mm. This was incredible, Mm. right? So what happened was we did two recordings in London. Then I drove to Bristol and opened for gig for Jeff at my old school theater in my my school. That was a great moment for Mm. me. Stayed the night in Bristol. Next day, drive to Plymouth, which is another three hours drive. Do a gig for him there leave it as soon as I've done my spot, drive back to London for three and a half hours. I get to my mate's house, who I haven't seen for a year. He allowed me to stay with him, probably around 1 a.m. He's already in bed, so is his missus. I go to bed. I wake up at 6 a.m., so five hours later. Don't see my mate that I'm staying with either, and I go to the Battle of Ideas the next day. And that, that to me, was a really exciting weekend. That was success. That was success. But... That was worse than any gig that I've I've died at because the 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 emotional and physical toll that yeah. that takes on you. Yeah. Imagine that driving eight hours in the space of two days, doing two gigs, and getting about I don't know five six hours sleep a night. You know, and that was the pinnacle of my career at yeah. the time. It was success. Yeah. So to me, you know, some people not laughing or someone heckling me, that was nothing as bad as what I was doing to myself. Mm. You know, every day. You know, so I don't really, you know, maybe it's because I haven't done comedy for a while as well. Like the the memory of those shit gigs that I used to do, it really doesn't exist for me in the same way. What I remember is driving myself to the brink of exhaustion, Mm. just doing the show and trying to make it work and, you know, always trying to improve and and the gigs and, and the this and the that, you know, that that was the the thing that was actually the worst in many ways. You know, Um, what about you? I mean, my worst ever gig. This, this is a, 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 this is a story. This is a beautiful story. So, uh, my tenth gig, I did at the local pub, 
it was it was known as the Grove in South Wimbledon. It was my local pub. It was rough. I got my first pint ever served to me there whilst dressed in my dad's leather jacket. Okay, sixteen years old, feeling incredible. Legend. Exactly. We went in. I did a I did a I did a gig there. It was a ten minute open spot in the middle, and I got up. And because it was my local pub, because of the people were people that I grew up with, and I knew who they were. There was, you know, South London, you know, mixed crowd, you know, working class, Irish, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I've got this. And I riffed. I riffed for 10 minutes and I smashed it. And I came off and I was just like, I'm, I'm a genius. And the promoter saw me and went, that was brilliant. He goes, you need to do bigger gigs. He goes, how long have you been going? I went, I've done 10 gigs. He was... Then he looked at me and was like, wow, this is almost like a prodigy. You're going to do this gig. I'm like, great. He goes, it's in the Lava Lounge in Bournemouth. I'm like, <laughs> so for our non-British viewers, the Bournemouth is a, is a sort of party town where a lot of uh, what we call hen nights and stag nights, no. which is a bachelorette and bachelor parties go to, right? Yeah, exactly. So he goes, this is what you see. This the Lava Lounge. Yeah, yeah, the Lava Lounge. And to me, I'm like, great. 300 people in this place. This is going to be amazing. I drove down with the comedians, uh, one of whom is actually a guy called Kevin Shepard, lovely guy. And he was talking to me. And, and I noticed that Kevin Kev showed a little a few signs of trepidation. He wasn't looking that comfortable. And I'm like, oh, what, what's going on? He was like, he, and he was going to me, it's, this isn't an easy gig, Francis. I'm like, oh, I'll be fine, mate. Just did 10 minutes to 30 people in a pub and I smashed it. 300? It's going to be ten times better. Anyway, we got to the we got to the gig. Kevin went on. Uh, the MC went on. Did okay. Kevin went on. Opened. Did okay. There was a break. And I remember looking out, and there was three hundred people. There was about, and they're all stagging hens. So there were two hundred and eighty-eight stags, and twelve hens. <laughs> and I immediately thought, this is creating an atmosphere. Yeah. And it's not a pleasant one. No, I bet you thought this is my crowd. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they brought me to the stage and I went on and they looked at me and I looked at them and I realised they weren't really on board. And uh, I said my first joke and it got polite laughter. I said my second joke and it didn't get much. And then all of a sudden I heard this low rumble of discontent, this booing. This, this booing. And I went, stop, stop. And I said to them, stop, stop, don't boo. Not, not, a, not power, a good move. Not a, good <laughs> not move. a power move, is it? <laughs> Please don't boo. Let me tell my next joke. <laughs> so just imagine the scene, right? It's a nightclub in Bournemouth, 300 stagging heads. And there's these very angry, drunk men dressed in mankinis. <laughs> looking at me and people coked out of their eyeballs whilst dressed as Spider-Man, getting more and more angry. And I went, and, and, and I had a little setup, and I went, so I looked Jewish. And then at the back, I heard the word yid, 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 until 300 people were all there chanting the word yid. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a very angry man who's morbidly obese in a mankini chant the word yid at you. But it, it, it's an interesting way to spend an evening. The funniest thing about that is you're not even Jewish. Yeah, I'm not even Jewish, but I've been anti-Semitically heckled mm. off a stage. Mm. So I was just getting heckled, booze, your shit, get off, fuck you, Spurs are shit. I don't even support Spurs. 
the Tottenham Hotspur. <laughs> so I put the mic back and then I walked off, utterly devastated. I feel as my whole world was collapsing around me. And my this was my eleventh gig, and then I walked up onto I walked up to the green room, and the MC, who's a guy called James Redmond, who was very big. He was a heartthrob in soaps about ten years before that. He played Finn in Hollyoaks. He just came up to me and he just held me as I was just shaking in the green room, just literally convulsing with just shock and just sadness as this just shame overcame my body. And I remember thinking at the time, going, there's a lot of women who I went to school with who would pay a lot of money for this moment. <laughs> I just remember thinking that. And then this was the worst bit. The headliner is called Terry Alderton. He's right? a very good comedian. Brilliant, Brilliant comedian, comedian. comedian. Brilliant impressionist. Went on and did ten, a 10-minute ten impersonation of me on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and all I could hear backstage was the words, please let me tell my joke. <laughs> I mean, he was not being a dick. He had to do that. He had That's to the do only it. way you address that situation. But for you, it would have been bad. Yeah, and he took the roof off. Yeah, of course. He and did. then, and then seeing that and everything that happened, and I remember, bless him, he came up to me, and he put his hands round my face and went, "I'm sorry, I had to do that. That was the only way I was going to get them back. It happens to everyone. Yeah, you're going to be fine. Go to bed, do a gig tomorrow. You'll be grand." And bless him for saying that. But he, and I, but he had to do that. But it's... Yeah. You reminded me of a gig that... Do you know what? My worst gig is a gig I didn't even do. Really? Yeah. So do you remember the, there was a there's a guy... Uh, I won't name names because there's no point. But there's a guy who used to run open mic type gigs in yeah. London. Yeah. Uh, and I turned up uh, and it, it just looked like a cafe. There was no stage. There was no <laughs> microphone. <laughs> yeah. And there was no audience. Yeah. And I turned up. And I went, hey, and I always, you know, from the very beginning, I always tried to be professional. Yeah, so yeah. I turned up, you know, uh, I was like, hey, how are you doing? Nice to meet you. I'm Constantine. So I'm looking forward to this gig. And he looked at me and went, it's good that you're enthusiastic, but can you go outside and see if anyone wants to watch the show? <laughs> and I looked around. I looked at the situation. I walked outside and I just got in my car and drove away. <laughs> and you know what? That's the smartest thing you've ever done. I know, man. I know. Um, so that was the world we were coming from. And then we start trigonometry. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning, we, it was funny because, because <laughs> you said to me, uh, Constantine, I think we're going to need a producer. Mm. And I said, what for? <laughs> like, that's how little I know. I was just like, well, you get a camera, you get a microphone yeah, and yeah. you just, yeah. you know, I had no idea what to do yeah. and neither did you, neither yeah. of us did. So, uh, Anton, who is our producer, uh, wasn't around at this time. We we we'll get to how we got we yeah. got Anton on board. But I mean, he was around, but we just didn't. Yeah, know him. we just didn't know him exactly. <laughs> thankfully, um, so we started with we borrowed a camera off a, off one of your mates. Yes, we did. We borrowed a camera off one of my mates. We borrowed my wife's camera. Yeah, that she had. Yeah, uh, and we bought some shitty tabletop microphones for like yeah. twenty quid each. Yeah, right. Um, and we hired this like eight, 18 or 19 year old girl yeah. who was a producer for us who didn't know what she was doing. Either. No. Either, just like us. And one of the first episodes we recorded was with Pippa Malgram, who's still to this day one of our great yeah. guests. But because of, of everyone not knowing what to do, mm. we lost most of that episode. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yes, I do remember that. Um, 
And that was the level at which we were operating yeah. at the time. And I was scrimping and scraping to get guests because I had a few contacts. Yeah. Um, and we just started doing it. Yeah. And we just started doing it. In addition to all the stuff that we just talked about. Yeah. You were still doing the emceeing and the yeah. radio and the teaching. Yeah. I was still doing all the gigs and all this other shit. And we've now added this new podcast that yeah. we have no idea what to do with to the list of things and that we, we do. And we were both in relationships, long-term relationships, yeah. so we were trying to keep those afloat yeah. as well. And we didn't, and we were putting our own money into it. And we had no money. Yeah. I certainly had no yeah. money. Yeah. So we were literally putting money that I couldn't afford into this yeah. thing. Yeah. And look, the, the comedy club that I was working at the time very graciously yeah. and very generously donated their yeah. space. Yeah, yeah, they I mean, used the space. Yeah, so we were very lucky with that because... Without that, I'm not sure how we would have started. But anyway, so we so we started off. The first episode is Gideon Rackman. <laughs> so Gideon came in. God bless him. He was great. He was great. He, he, came he comes in. in, sits down. We're around this table where you can't see our faces. Yeah. It's from the side. It looks like a seance. Yeah, it looks like a seance. Terribly lit. Uh, blah, blah, blah. We start recording. Within about, I don't know, a couple of minutes, there's a horn beeping outside. Yeah. And it's ridiculously loud. Yeah. So I'm like all pumped up. I go outside to see, to, to deal with it. And there's a woman <laughs> trying to attach one of those like anti-theft devices to a steering <laughs> yeah. wheel. And in the process, she keeps pressing yeah. on the on the thing, right? And I go up to her, in my opinion, quite politely and go, hey, excuse me, uh, are you going to be much longer? Because we're, we're recording a podcast yeah. next door. And she gets very angry with me. Yeah. And at this point, two other people who turn out to be her parents come out of the house and they like their experiences. I'm harassing their daughter. <laughs> yeah. So they basically chase me down the street. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out they just come from a funeral. So they were understandably quite upset. Yeah. Uh, and then um, we had to write a letter of apology. And give them chocolates. And give them chocolates. And that's how the show started. That was yeah. day one. Yeah. We were already pissing people off. Yeah, from day In, one. Inadvertently, but still pissing people mm. off. And then we we got, we we started to, thanks to you, we got some, you know, really good guests. And so Pippa came in, although we lost that. Andrew Doyle came in. Yeah, that wasn't thanks to me, actually. You got Andrew Doyle in. Did I get Andrew Well, Doyle? we wanted to get Andrew in and you were the one that had his details somehow. Oh. And as we talked about at the live show with, with Andrew uh, a couple of months ago, uh, he thought we were trying to stitch him up because yeah. he didn't know us at yeah. the time, right? So we get Doyle in, we get Gideon in, we get Pipper in, we get Liam Halligan in. I had to work really hard yeah. to get Liam in, you know. We got David Pilling in. David Pilling was great. And and gradually we start doing stuff. And, and, and you know, Peter Tatchell came in. Yeah, he did. You know, that, that was a big guest at the time for us. Um, and then um, all of that's happening. And then our producer says, you know what? I really don't want to do this. Yeah. This was like five episodes in or something. Yeah. She was like, you know what? This isn't for me. I don't really enjoy this. Kudos to her. Instead of, you know, being, you know, because she was only 19, but she had, you know, she she had the, the stuff to come up to us. I was going to say cojones, wrong way of saying that. She had the stuff to come up to us and say, look, this isn't for me. So we're like, Okay. Yeah. But what the one thing I do remember about that is in the last episode we ever recorded with her, she so didn't give a shit that she was sitting in the corner just typing. And I remember sitting there seething at the fact that we were still paying her. And instead of paying attention to the episode, she was just like doing admin. And I could hear the keys. And every time she pressed a key, I was just like... Argh. Really? Yeah. I, I, I don't even remember yeah. that. What episode was that with? Would it be Jeremy Shapiro, maybe? Oh, was it Jeremy Shapiro? It might have been. I don't remember. But my point is, like, 
It was not a good situation. No, no. So now, having just started and just got the ball rolling, our producer basically says, I don't want to work with you anymore. So then we found another producer who you'd worked with before. Yep. And he had a studio that was professional. And he had uh, the right... His cameras are probably more expensive than the ones we use to this day. Yeah. Right? Great Uh, cameras. Yeah. He was very skilled in terms of, you know, technically he knew what he was doing. And we were like, well, look, we can get, <laughs> it's embarrassing, but we were like, look, we can we can maybe afford to pay you 500 pounds a month to edit four episodes yeah. and record, which was yeah. really ridiculous money. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he was doing it, you know, the, on the promise that it might one day become yeah. something. Yeah. So we go there. Yeah. And that's where the show really starts taking off because we get Sargon in. Yeah. We get Dinah Fleischman in. We get Dr. Linda Papadopoulos in. Yeah, we got we get Brendan O'Neill in. Brendan, Claire Fox, yeah, Eric Kaufman, yeah. David Goodhart, yeah, and Matt Goodwin, Matt Goodwin, uh, fucking hell, these are great guests, yeah. Like if we got a lineup like that this month, we'd be really pleased with yeah. that. Yeah, that's an incredible lineup. And uh, bear in mind, I remember when I read about Eric Kaufman because I read him and then I recommended him to you and said, "Look, we need to get this guy in. This guy's talking." You know, these were guys on the fringes, particularly like, I mean, you're on the fringes, they're far more well-known now. Yeah. But Matt Goodwin and... You we know, made Ed, them. Yeah, we made them. Mm. Exactly. Uh, but all these people, no, they weren't really in, in the culture war, as it were. No. Well, Sargon was. Well, Sargon was, and so was Brendan O'Neill, but the rest of them, you know, yeah. w- really yeah. weren't. Yeah. And then we brought them in, and then we had a conversation, and you could feel something was starting to happen. Ella Whelan. Ella Whelan, yeah. Tom Slater. Tom Slater. You know, we got a lot of the Spike in at that time, and yeah. they were great. They were great. They were really good. And, you know, at the time, I think one of the things that I remember as well is almost all of them said, I really enjoyed that. That was great questions. Yeah. And I, and I was almost slightly shocked because we were very new to doing yeah, it, you yeah. know. And let's be honest as well, I think, if you don't mind me saying, you in particular, me, I was probably further down the, yeah. the red pill rabbit yeah. hole at this yeah. point. You were quite scared. Of at course. Time. Like when we interviewed Sargon, I remember sitting next to you and I could feel the fear coming off you because you were uncomfortable. Oh, absolutely. I was very uncomfortable talking to Sargon because I don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, Carl. I like you very much. No, it's um, the reason was is because Carl to me was dangerous. Mm. Carl could end my career. There are people who still dislike trigonometry and me because we interviewed Carl. I don't care anymore. They can have their opinion. Whatever, they're entitled to it. Yeah. But I, I was genuinely terrified. Kay Andrews. Yeah. We had Kay Andrews in Yeah. There. And it was a brilliant interview. It was a great interview. So this is the point where the show is actually starting to take off. And I think one of the last interviews we did was actually with Jeff Norcott. It was. It was, it was the last one we recorded in that studio. Nicholas Gruen as well, we had in there. Yeah. And the reason I say the last interview, because as we were really starting to do well, Mm. it it became very clear that our producer, again, was not on board with what we were doing to the point where (laughs) when we interviewed, and he's a lovely guy, bless him. But when we interviewed Kate Andrews, I remember after the interview was finished, uh, he cornered her and started explaining to her why she was wrong about everything. (laughs) Do you remember? And bear in mind, yeah, I do remember. And bear in mind, actually, the, the, that guy, the producer, um, who I've still got a lot of love for and I'm still in contact with, is a very, very intelligent guy with, a, you know, very strong opinions of the world. <laughs> but I don't think he understood, like, because he was also in really great 
We always get producers who are in great shape, don't we? Just muscly oh, men. Oh, yeah. That he he <laughs> didn't really understand that a muscly dude cornering a little woman and basically... So you're wrong You're about wrong her. about this. Might be a bit intimidating. Yeah. And I remember that because Kate then went, well, I'm going to leave now. <laughs> and then she walked downstairs and she literally ran out the door. Yeah. And that's the last time I've ever seen Kate. Mm. Yeah. So that was part of it. So he clearly wasn't aligned. And I think because he wasn't aligned, it meant that he was starting to, you know, not take it quite as seriously as yeah. we'd hoped. And look, it was unfair of us to expect him to be doing a super professional job when we're paying him peanuts. Yeah. But that was all that we could afford to pay him. But at the same time, he was starting to get to a point where it was unworkable. Yeah. And I think in characteristic KK style, I exploded at one point mm-hmm. and I went, look, this isn't working. Yeah. You know, when are you going to do this? And he didn't like that. And basically, we went from, oh, the show's taking off to we've lost our studio, we've lost our equipment, and we've lost our producer. I, and we're I, back to zero. I remember because it, it happened over Peter Hitchens because yeah. Peter was meant to come in. He rescheduled. We booked Peter yeah. and he cancelled. The producer cancelled yeah. on us. And Peter was the biggest guest probably to that point that we yeah. would ever well, got. Yeah, of course. And it, you worked really hard, to be fair to you, to get Peter on. Yeah. And, you know, because, look, to be fair to Peter, he didn't know who we were. He had a reputation to protect. So he was very cagey about coming on, understandably so. I knew that it was unsustainable. But in my mind, I'm like, we just need to bank episodes. We're we're on a roll. We need to bank episodes. We need to bank episodes. We need to bank episodes. And then we'll be able to move. Yeah. Yeah, my socially conservative, let's get all the points I just couldn't hold it in that far, man. It was just getting too much for me. Yeah, let's keep everything, let's make, before we make the move. Then you explode it, and I'm like, well, we've got three (laughs) episodes, and I I remember just being there going, how are we going to get out of this one? And then what we did is we went back to the comedy club. No. No. Didn't we? What about Munira? Of course. So what we did is we had a mate of, of mine at the time who had a house actually around the corner from that yeah. studio. And we used his house, to rec- a lovely house, to record yeah. an episode with Munira, which at the time we were very happy about. Yeah. But also uh, it was like just in a random room in his house and there was like a helicopter flying overhead. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and, and, and at the time it didn't do particularly well, that episode. It did all right. It, like, it got, got like, 12,000 f- 12, views, I remember it. Yeah. It's now on over 100, I think, because Munira has since been a, a bit yeah. of a public figure yeah. and, and there's been controversy involving her. So we recorded one episode in someone's house and we realized that wasn't going to work. So we went back to the comedy club where we were before and in that process, we started looking for a new producer. Yeah, we did. And this is where Talk Radio came in because I had a producer at Talk Radio who was really good to me and a super lovely guy called Andrew, Andrew Spence. And I contacted Andrew and I said to him, Andrew, we need to find a a, a producer. And he goes, I think I've got the guy for you. And I went, and he went, went, what's his name? He went, Anton. And I remember thinking, it's a bit of a weird name. Right? And he goes, (laughs) generally what I thought. He goes, but I think that he'd be perfect for you. I was like, okay, brilliant. So we went to meet him in a burger restaurant. We did. Yeah. And so we went to But we didn't know he was vegetarian at the time. Now, I to don't... be fair to us, when we found out, we still kept taking <laughs> yeah, him there t- to no, a we steak did. restaurant. We took him to a steak restaurant. Yeah. Right. But you've got to look after him. Yeah, exactly. Come and on, then... mate. Get some protein in you. Yeah, ex- and spoke to him whilst literally eating animal in front of him. But here's the thing, right? 
So we met This him. is the end of 2018, by the way. This is all of this so far has happened in the space of about six months. Yeah. Six months. In six months, we've lost two studios and two producers. Yeah. And then we met Anton. Yeah. And then we 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 were both really taken with him. We we're both really taken. We and we were saying, look, I think this is the final part. And by the, the way, I think he was taken with us because by this point, I was absolutely I wasn't convinced, I wasn't certain, I was just I just knew. Hmm. I knew. And I always said this to you, if the two of us stick together and we we don't ever fall out between us mm. over stuff, this will be a success. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that I sold you on that as well, Anton, right? Yeah. Because I knew, I knew this was going to work. Yeah. By that point, I knew. Because I just thought, look at how little we have. Yeah. We have fuck all. We have two comedians who, who don't have any profile at all. Yeah. No equipment. No, no nothing. No, no studio. No, no money. Pro- no money. Well, negative money. Yeah. Right? And yeah, it's working. Yeah. I just knew it was going to work. Yeah. So we get Anton on board and we just about start the process. Again, we offered him the same 500 quid a month. Yeah. Uh, uh, and he was working a bunch of different jobs at the time and, and, and doing all of that. And this is the point where my contract happens. Mm. The very end of 2018, right? We've just moved to the new studio. We've just got our feet under the table. Yeah. And then for people who are new to the show... I get offered to do this gig mm. for charity at one of the woke, wokest colleges in this country. Mm. And they say that they have a zero tolerance policy on racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, xenophobia, etc. And I turn it down and I tweet about it. Mm. And a couple of our guests retweet it and then it goes super viral. Mm-hmm. Super viral. It goes all around the world. This is the thing I always say about it. It was the second biggest story on the BBC mm. on the day that Theresa May, the then prime minister of this country, was nearly removed from office by her own party. I remember that. And the story about some unknown comedian turning down some shitty unpaid gig from some stupid college was the number two story Wow! in the country at the time. And yeah. I was getting messages from all over the world. And that was an insane experience from someone who was not in any way a public figure at the time. Yeah. Because I, I don't think many people ever had this experience, but you, you basically, you can't sleep. Yeah. You're getting hundreds of messages every day. You wake up at six in the morning and you and your Twitter DMs, you had a thousand people on Twitter yesterday and now it's just like thousands of people following you every few mm, hours. Yeah. And you're getting like messages from the Today program, Times, Sunday yeah, Times, yeah. Telegraph, Spectator, Guardian, whatever. Yeah. You're getting phone calls. Suddenly people know your phone number. Yeah. You know? And it's just nonstop. And it was like that for about a week and a half. Yeah. Until eventually I got a call from uh, my agent, which I luckily had an agent at the time, to manage all of this craziness. And she said, good morning, Britain. want you to come on and talk about this. And it's funny to me to talk about it now because today... Like, I get a message from Good Morning Britain every few weeks now mm. saying, do you want to come on and talk about this or that? And I I, I sometimes don't even answer anymore. Mm. I'm just not interested. But then I remember when it got confirmed, it, it was the end of a very difficult 10 days. Mm. And I went into my room when it got confirmed and I started crying. It's the last time I've cried, I think, because, you know, all of that stuff that we'd been talking about and the things I'd been feeling... Mm about the importance of freedom of expression, the fact that society is going in the wrong direction. Mm. 
I was talking about all of this and the world around me, the comedy industry, the people we were around, they, they, were, they were saying, oh, this is all bullshit. You're just making this up. None of this is true. You know, and I felt, you know, I hate to use this term, but I felt very gaslit by the entirety of my surroundings. And I remember my wife came in and saw me crying and she's, you know, I just, I, it was that 10 days of just this endless stream of whatever that was happening, the stress, the tension, the worries, the whatever. And plus that feeling of vindication. That's what it was. I, I just felt like finally the, this idea that I had in my head, it's, it's not just me being deluded. You know, I'm actually, people are recognizing the truth in what I've been talking mm. about. And then I went on Good Morning Britain the next day. And it's a weird experience because they, they book you a hotel in central London. They get you a taxi. They drive you over. You turn up. And you get to this posh hotel, you know, and really you want to be, you know, you have a, have a, a meal, have a, a glass of wine, go to bed, wake up fresh the next morning. But you can't mm. because your brain is racing. So all that happens is you're lying there all night and you're just, all of the shit is just running mm. in your head. Like you're just over and over and over and over and you're rehearsing. You're thinking, what am I going to say? And what if this and what if that and what if that? And when, I, I hate going back to that interview that I, that my first time in Good Morning Britain because it's, I come across very angry. And, and I did, and I was very angry because it was that vindication plus Rebecca Reed, who I'm actually quite good friends with since, but, you know, she opened it by completely misrepresenting what had happened and saying that these students thought I wasn't funny when actually they just, they had nothing to, they thought I was funny and that's why they, but anyway, long story short. So I'm not, while that, I did as well as I could have done, but I'm really not very proud of it uh, because I feel like I don't come across well in that, you know. But that was a huge moment for the show. Yeah, well, it was. It was. It changed the show. And then you went on Tucker. Yeah, yeah. I, and I remember Alistair Williams, who is now a he was a former guest. Well, I was a brilliant, brilliant comedian, Alistair, going to me. It's so exciting that Constantine's on Tucker Carlson. It's, Did and, you know who Tucker was at this? Point? No, no, you I didn't, didn't know. Did. I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't. It was so removed from the realms of what I knew and my life that I couldn't really process it. And the thought of you being on Tucker Carlson, it didn't mean anything to me. He was just going, I can't believe he's on Tucker. I can't believe he's on Tucker. Biggest show in America. Yeah. And also, I didn't know what you were going through at the time. I just didn't know. I, d I didn't know, you know, the 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 apps, the storm. And, and to an extent, I've never experienced that. I've experienced some parts of it to, to a very, very minor degree, but I've never experienced that type of thing. And then the reaction that the comedy industry had to you. That was the shock to me. Yeah. Even that was the biggest shock to me because, and you're going to laugh very hard, but I was so naive when I turned down that contract. I actually, I mean, it's ridiculous how naive it now sounds, but I thought I was taking one for the team. I thought I was speaking out for team comedy. <laughs> That's what I thought. That's what I thought. I thought this is this is what all comedians can get behind. You know, the idea that we should be able to do jokes on stage and the only censors are ourselves and the audience. I thought I'm standing up for us. For us, the comedy world. That's what I thought. And what I quickly realized is actually most of the comedy circuit hated me for it. They hated me 
for standing up for free speech in comedy? Maybe not most. I, don't, I wouldn't say most. A lot. A lot of people. A lot. A very vocal and powerful minority, yeah. I would say. But 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 they're so powerful that they might as well be the majority. Yeah. Because yeah, they're yeah. all the TV commissioners. They're all the, you know. Yeah, you know, yeah of course, of course. They're of all course. the people who run Edinburgh. They're all the people who yeah. control everything, yeah. right? So that was one one of the reasons that I, I was crying before going on GMB because I didn't expect that. No. I, I thought, well, I, first of all, I never expected it to go viral in the first place. Mm -hmm. But when it did, I was like, well, great. I've done something good for the comedy world, yeah. for the comedy industry. Yeah. And then to see the comedy industry actually be angered by this. And misrepresent you. And misrepresent me. And actually, you know what? I think probably quite a lot of it was just jealousy. Completely. Quite a lot was just jealousy. But I think also a big part of it was ideological too, mm. which is I'd done the wrong thing, you know. Comedians are not supposed to be about free speech. We're supposed to be about avoiding hurting people's mm. feelings. And that was a shock. Which is why, no matter what someone's political beliefs are, I always have a tremendous amount of empathy for people who find themselves going from obscurity to being in the public eye in that way. I don't care who you are. I am one of the most mentally resilient people, on, mm. I would say, on this planet. Genuinely. I am. I've been through a lot and I've learned a lot and I've done a lot of personal development stuff. Mm. I'm very mentally resilient. I don't care who you are. That is difficult. It is very difficult. And there will be people who can't, who can't handle it. Yeah. You know, they just can't. So when, when I see people being demonized or, or, or treated in this way, even when they've done something wrong in the public eye, there's a lot of, a lot of me that I just feel empathy for them because mm. I know how difficult that is. Yeah. And you, you, do, you stop. What happens... And this is something that I've experienced: is that you become a public figure, and you're not Constantine anymore. You're Constantine kissing, and you're a public figure. And then you become a public figure for people to comment, criticise. But it's not really you. No, it's not you. They're criticising a, a construction, an right. image, yeah, an avatar, and and it's it's very surreal, and very bizarre. And and I remember watching you go through that. And and also feeling that there wasn't, I, I didn't know what else, what I could do that, or, or what I could say. Well, you were very supportive, actually. Was I? Yeah, you were great. You were yeah. great. You, and I think, um, I hope you won't mind me saying this, but Simon Brodkin, who's yeah. Lee Nelson. Yeah. And I don't think it was because he was necessarily ideologically aligned with trigonometry. I don't think he is. Uh, it's just him and I had gigged the week before and he really liked me. Yeah. And he thought I was good. Uh, and he's a very famous comedian. So at the time, for him to reach out to me, he spent hours on the phone with me. Yeah. Just like reassuring me and consoling yeah. me. And I got, you know, I won't name all the names. There was a lot of famous comics that got yeah. in touch with me and, and were like keeping my spirits up and, yeah. you know. But yeah, your support and the support of a lot of other people really. There were there were lots of people also who were very supportive. I shouldn't shouldn't yeah. lose, lose track yeah. of that. You know, and Simon in particular was really, really great. Yeah. But anyway, that obviously gave the show a big boost. Yeah. And we went, this is the very end of 2018. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at this point, I think we were starting to get to a point where I think we'd started a Patreon mm -hmm. when we got kicked out of, when we, when we left our previous studio uh, and people started supporting us. And uh, our, f our first, like, this was the first time we'd ever actually, not we were not taking money out of trigonometry mm -hmm. at this point, but people were starting to give us money and the money that we were paying Anton, 
the generous 500 quid a month <laughs> was actually not coming from us anymore for the no, first time. No, We weren't losing money doing we chicken. No, I think we still were. Actually, no, because then there was... No, there things. was other costs. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, there was other costs, yeah. yeah. But then what happened is a couple of people came in. One of them uh, who, who messaged us saying, guys, I love what you do. I want to support you. And I think that the subtext was, your show looks and sounds shit. What yeah. can I do? Yeah. And he bought us... Um, Cameras. He, he bought us new cameras. What about microphones? Did he buy microphones as well or just cameras? No, cameras. It was just cameras. Right. It was just cameras. And I think we ourselves put more money into it and yeah. bought lapel mics yeah. for the first time yeah. as well. Yeah. Not these ones because these are much better. No, right? no, yeah. They, they, were, they were massive. They were like this big, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we got those and then we started recording at the new space, right? Yeah. And then, and, and that's where we got, you know, we made progress. That's where we got Douglas yep. eventually for a second time. Yep. Right. Uh, we had a lot of our big... Peter Hitchens. Peter Hitchens. Yeah. We got Hitch in there. We got... who Starkey. Else? Yeah, we, we had Starkey in there. Yeah. We had... Zuby. Zuby. Inaya. Diana Fleischman again. Anaya. Yeah, we... Uh, Aisha. Je uh, Jeffrey Miller. Jeffrey Miller, who was great. Yeah. We did a lot. Mike Martin. Like, yeah. a lot of our great interviews were done in that. And Ella Hill. Yeah, that was a brilliant interview. That is, I, I, I don't know what other interviews we're going to do. I suspect I that will be one of, interviewing Ella in that way will be one of the most things that I'm most proud of in yeah. my life. Decades from now. Yeah. Decades from now. Mm. I mean, Ella is brilliant. It's an important subject that no one wanted to talk about. And we interviewed the survivor of a group of mass rape, basically. Mm. Yeah. And it was funny. Like I, I'm so proud of that. Yeah, it's 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 an incredible interview. It's an incredible interview, and that period where it was between the lockdowns, mm. where we came out and we did in-person interviews. That was a very special time. We interviewed Lawrence again. Mm. That, I think that's on something ridiculous, like yeah. half a million views. Yeah, and the first time we interviewed Lawrence as well. And yeah. look, Lawrence has gone in his own direction yeah. since, but at the time it was a. It was a great moment. Yeah, it was. It was, it was a, a great, great moment. moment. It was and a... people were reaching out to us saying, oh, I love your show. And these are like people that we would, you know, yeah. respect. Yeah. So and we, we interviewed Lawrence. There was, Aisha, it can be. It was, it was a brilliant time. And still, to contextualize it, you, you were still teaching. Yeah. You were still doing overnight radio. You were, st I think. No, at this point, because this was, we, we, well, we haven't even touched on lockdown. Yeah, well, we haven't got to lockdown yeah. yet. Hold on. Yeah, yeah. So oh, before right. lockdown. So before lockdown, you were still teaching. Yeah, I was still teaching one day a week. Yeah, I wasn't doing the radio anymore. I'd quit the radio at that point. Right, but I was still teaching and I gigging was, six nights a week. And I was gigging six nights a right. week. Right, and I was the, the thing I talked about with Jeff. It was during that period. Yeah, record two interviews, drive to another city, do a gig, wake up the next day, drive to another city, do a gig, drive back to London, wake up after five hours sleep, go to the Battle of Ideas all day there, go to bed, wake up next day, gig. Yeah, that's, right. that, 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 and that that was brutal. Yeah, that was the treadmill that we were on. That's that was we, absolutely brutal. That's what we were doing. And then COVID hit. Yeah, I remember when COVID hit. I was at the Top Secret Comedy Club, probably the best comedy club in 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 the UK. Love it to pieces. And I and I was uh, doing it, and I was emceeing a gig. And it, I think it was on Monday, I can't remember the exact date, I think it was the 31st of March, but someone will probably correct me on when it was. And Boris Johnson had just told everyone to go home, to literally go home. The society was shutting down. 
and it was the last gig that we were, I was I was there, and um, the gig carried on because the next day it was done, and uh, the, the I remember the MC didn't turn up because she couldn't get an Uber, so I effectively closed the gig myself. So I MC'd it, and then I did twenty minutes at the end to close the gig, mm. and it was just—it felt like end of days. And I remember there were this lovely, sweet old couple who came to watch the gig, and afterwards they walked past me, and they were like, "We really enjoyed this." And I remember thinking to myself, "What are you doing here? What are you doing here? This—this this is dangerous, legitimately dangerous. What you're doing? Why are you here?" And it was weird. There was just an air of terror in the room but also a feeling of we need to be here because we don't know when we're going to be able to do this again and it was a very very bizarre time well how was that for you well i you know i've been proven right on it i said it's just a bit of flu doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> i mean that was my attitude i look at the two of us i think i'm much more risk uh, hungry and you're yeah. much more risk averse. Yeah. So you, you, you've been proven right over the last couple of years. Yeah. But again, to emphasize, when lockdown hit, this, we hadn't taken any money as no. a, for us no. in any way. We still were putting our own money into it. The only thing was, th- that was the thing that really was horrible about lockdown. What happened was, we had just got our first big sponsor. Yeah which was QT, if you remember, advertising QT. And they agreed to pay us an amount which meant that we could increase Anton's salary. Yeah. And for the first time in the history of the show, yeah. nearly two years mm. after we started, we could actually take a little bit of money yeah. for ourselves. I was so thrilled at that. And I remember in early April, just before lockdown, I sent my second, our second invoice mm. to QT to our sponsor, mm. to get the second yeah. batch of money. And he wrote back saying, I've just laid off half my team. I'm sorry, I can't see this through. So having just started yeah. to get to a point where actually we could afford to do this full time, because it's not about putting money in the bank. It was about allowing us just to do this, right? That was what we needed the money for. Mm. And it's gone. And lockdown's hit. And the comedy club where we were recording said, you can't record. Yeah. And you remember, people were very, very scared about COVID at the time. Of course, understandably so. Understandably so. So no guest would come in and we had to do everything remotely. Yeah. Right? I remember being locked, being in my flat and going from gigging six nights a week, working, working, working to build this career, to build relationships, to, to, to get to the point where I was constantly working, where I was earning okay money for the first time in my life. Okay money. I'm not talking big money. I'm talking okay money. And overnight, it was gone. And we were making, I was at that point, I was making 500 quid a month from trigonometry. Yeah. I'd quit my teaching job. Yeah. And I was living on 500 quid a month. Yeah. Which didn't cover rent. Yeah. Which didn't cover bills. Yeah. Which didn't cover food. Yeah. Which didn't cover any of that. Yeah. And I remember looking around the four walls of my little flat in Harringay and going, I'm fucked. I can't go back to teaching. That's done. Stand-up's finished, possibly forever. Is this the start of a new world where this virus spreads everywhere and is deadly and what what are we going to do? 
And I just remember just being overwhelmed by this sense of complete hopelessness. And I remember sinking into a feeling of despair. Mm. And that's when you decided to break up with your girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. And then, you know, and there was a, a number of things in my life that didn't work and we and we broke up and it it was it was the right thing for both of us. But but just looking around and realizing that everything had changed. And I remember comedians going, oh, this is only going to be two or three weeks. And I knew it, everything had, had changed. I remember being in bed one day and going, and this was early April, and going, no, this is, this is permanent. Because the way I saw it, there were only three ways out of this. Either we had a vaccine, there was there had been at that point no vaccine against the coronavirus, or... Uh, what happens is the virus is not as potent as we thought. And at that time, it had got into the care homes. And it was really bad at the time. Yeah, and thousands of people were dying every week from it. And I was like, well, that's not going to happen. Or the government are just going to let it rip. And that wasn't going to happen either. So, and then do you remember Boris Johnson got very ill with it and was hospitalized. Mm -hmm. And then that's when I was thinking, no, this is... yeah. This this is really serious, yeah. and everything has changed. Mm. And I remember talking to a friend of mine who made the point that what we're going to have now is it's going to be like AIDS. There was a pre-AIDS world and there's a post-AIDS world, and that's what it was going to be like with COVID. There's going to be pre-COVID and post-COVID, and that's the way it is. And that's what's proven to be. Well, here's the thing with lockdown and COVID is for all the terrible stuff that we, we, you know we've talked about it on the show a lot. Mm. Um, I think it's fair to say that COVID saved us yeah. and made us. Yeah. I can tell you COVID saved my marriage, for example. Yeah. If if I had continued working in that way that we were just talking about, it was going downhill rapidly because mm. I just wasn't, I wasn't spending any time with my wife because I just didn't have any energy to do it. And emotionally, I wasn't there. I wasn't present because mm. I was constantly on my way somewhere, on my way. You know, we were, t we were sitting last night just talking and I remembered driving home from, from a gig. And I literally felt that I had so little time. I got an empty water bottle and I, I peed into it while driving on the motorway. Mm. Do you know how fucking dangerous that is? Depends how big your dick is, I suppose. Well, not for me, but yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah. Yeah. But it's also a reflection of a state of mind. I just couldn't fit it. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's a reflection of a state of mind and it's a reflection of where you are. And you're not, you're not a good partner no, no. To, to anyone in that situation. No. I'm, I'm frankly, when I think back to it, I'm amazed. Like we we've, we held this together, we held our relationship. Well, not in your case, but you know, um, it was really, really tough. And the fact that lockdown happened, and hey, you know, you want a gig? Well, you can't. Yeah. You want to do this? You can't. Yeah. So you might as well do a, 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 what we started doing, which is live streams, which we'd been doing like once a week up to that point. And even then sporadically. Sporadically. And we just look, we just went, look, we've got nothing else to do. Let's do two interviews a week and let's do live streams. And then we got Anton on board with the live streams over time as well. And it just became a thing that people, and now we call them Raw, Trigonometry Raw. Mm -hmm. It's a separate show, yeah. uh, which will probably go further and further in its own direction over yeah. time while the interviews go further. And we'll talk about that uh, later on. Um, you know, and that that was a huge moment for us. And that was the first time when we actually started to make enough money yeah. to cover our costs and so that we could do this full time. Yeah, yeah. 
And even then, there was a perception in the industry that we were making a lot of money. At that point, we were. No, no, no. We 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 were paying. Uh, I think we went from paying Anton five hundred quid to paying him a thousand quid a month yeah. for full time work. Yeah, it was full time. Yeah. It was insane. I remember literally sitting down right before lockdown because at this point we were already thinking we need to go full yeah. time. We were in a steak restaurant, ironically, yeah. with Anton being a vegetarian. And I remember saying, I mean, it's ridiculous and we laugh about it, saying this now. I said to him, Anton, what is the least amount of money we need to pay you to do this? Yeah. Because that's the situation. Yeah. We needed to take it full time, but we couldn't afford to. Yeah. And Anton came up with some ridiculous figure, like a thousand pounds, which mm. you can't live off in central London. No. Right. That doesn't even cover rent. No. But that was that was the moment when we sort of went, okay, we're, we're doing this. Yeah. We're doing this. And actually, uh, my second appearance of Good Morning Britain, mm. I'm very pleased with because it ties into the story of Anton joining us because he was doing part-time work at the mm. time. And... I just did this thing with, uh, what's his face? Adil Ray mm -hmm. and um, Dr. Shola, uh, where, I mean, you know, they got wrecked. Yeah. They got absolutely yeah, yeah. wrecked by what I'd said. And it was really good. And I was calm and I was measured and I was mm -hmm. funny yeah. and I was playful, but I absolutely destroyed them. Mm. Right. And I sent a message to Anton saying, Anton, I think we need to make a video of this. This was like what? In the morning? First thing? Yeah. 8 a.m.? And Anton had just got to work. Yeah. And he'd got in, and apparently, this is the story that he, he always loves to tell, which is hilarious. He gets in, he sits down at his desk, he gets the message from me, having just like made a coffee for himself. And I go, Anton, we've got this thing that if we put it out, it could go viral. And, and he goes back to his desk, picks up all his shit at his job and just walks out and yeah. he goes, I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't come back that day. Yeah. And I think that's kind of when you knew you were all in, right? Um and then lockdown, and then that's when the show really took off. Yeah, and the show took off over lock lockdown. The first lockdown. The first lockdown. And the thing that really meant that we could really take our foot and put our foot on the gas was that we embraced remote interviews. Because before then, we'd been like, remote interviews were crap, and they're not as good as in-person. And we know that to be the case. They're not as good as in-person. That's just the simple truth of it. But every interview was a remote interview. No one was doing in-person. So all of a sudden, you could do a remote interview. And then we got some really big guests. Scott Adams came on. Mm -hmm. We Gad got Gad Sad. We got some huge people on. And, uh, and you know, Deborah So, Deborah came on. All these people that we'd been watching on Rogan and Ruben, all of a sudden were appearing on our show. And it was really, really, really exciting. For us. Yeah, for us, not for them. <laughs> <laughs> but But what I also mean is, the reason I bring it up is when the first lockdown, it only lasted a couple of months, but it it radically transformed the show. Yeah. It meant that we all went full time at this point. Again, well, not making much money, but we had enough money just to make, just to not have to do other things. That's all it was. Yeah. Right. Just, just so we could not have to do other things. And that's the point at which we went back to the comedy club right as the first lockdown finished. And we interviewed Lawrence Fox again yeah. and we interviewed Zuby. This was the BLM you know, yeah. hype situation. Yeah. Aisha Kambi, Inayafullah and Iman, mm. a lot of people who were critical of this movement. Uh, and we and we were frankly at this point, we were like, okay, we know what we're doing. Yeah. We know what we believe. We know who we want to talk to. Yeah. And we don't really care what other people yeah. think about it. Yeah. And so and so we and so that and that was a really, really exciting moment because 
we could you could feel that you know that everything was really starting to motor and do really well. And then we got asked to leave. Yeah, we were asked to leave for a variety of different reasons. And look, the reason you you, you feel hesitant to talk about it is that the club and the people there had done us a lot of good things. Yeah. And we will always be eternally grateful to them yeah. for doing that. Mm. But also the way we left was unpleasant. Yeah. And I think was unfair. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think we got kicked out of their due to a combination of political differences, which yeah. we always knew were going to yeah. be the case. A little bit of jealousy, mm. a little bit of just lockdown sent everybody yeah. mental. Yeah. But it was very unpleasant. Yeah. It was. Especially for you. Yeah. It because, was un- because these were your friends. Yeah, because it was unpleasant. It was unpleasant for me. And and then I remember thinking that we went in, we recorded it, and we had to leave. And just feeling this sense of devastation, feeling a sense of shock, feeling a sense of, of bereavement almost because it had been a community. So that happened. So I was thinking to myself, right. Well, just imagine this for people watching. Hold on before you say how you, like, we've just got to a point. Yeah. Just got to a point where we can actually, we're not making money. Yeah. And and I keep mentioning money, not because I'm Jewish, but just because it's what makes anything work. You need money to make things work, right? We just started making enough money to pay everybody just enough to cover their basic costs yeah. so we could do this full yeah. time and make it what it needs to be. We, we're just, we've got these big guests, the show's exploding, yeah, it's growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now we've lost our studio again. Yeah. In the middle of a fucking pandemic and lockdown. Yeah. So we've lost our studio. We've lost everything. I then get a call from my landlady going, we're going to need you to leave the flat. <laughs> so I, not only that, I lost my flat. <laughs> and then I remember just... Just looking around, going right. They've taken they think my career's <laughs> gone. I'm no longer at the comedy club that I used to be. My relationship has ended, and they turn in the flat. I can't live in my flat anymore. Oh, you've I, got left as me. Yeah, and that's depressing. And I was thinking, anything else? Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. And just and going right, and then I moved in with a friend uh, as a stopgap, and and then I, I remember calling you up. I'm going, look, I think I've got an idea. Mm. I've got an idea. You went like, well, what is it? What's the solution? I go, look, why don't we rent a flat in London? We rent a flat for myself and Anton and we just turn the living room into a studio. And then when it's not a studio, we'll put everything away and it becomes a living room. And that way we're not beholden to people. That way we don't have to ask the people. That way we're not dependent on favours. All of these different things. All of these different things. Yeah. And so after a few weeks of nonstop looking, you worked really hard, you found a place, we moved in, we got it designed the way we wanted. We threw basically all the money we had at it because we just knew it needed to be right. Same same as my approach has always been, it needs to look good and needs to sound good and it needs to be a good experience for the Mm. guest. And I remember the first, we got these chairs that we're sitting in now and the first time we walked into that studio, we sat down Douglas Murray sat down across mm. from us and I just, for the first time, I just thought, wow, I have the freedom to ask this great man who I respect so much, who we are becoming closer and familiar with, mm. anything I want. Yeah. 
I don't have to worry about some woke comedian behind that door right there in this tiny room, you know, overhearing me ask the wrong question mm. or whatever. Yeah. I can just say what I think and ask him what he thinks and we can have a conversation. And that's when the drilling started. And that's when the drilling started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's when the drilling started because there's a there's a you know you doing the show in a residential space yeah. is difficult. It's yeah. going to cause challenges, but nonetheless, yeah. that was a brilliant first interview with it Douglas. Was. We had some issues with the sound, which we we ended up getting around, and then it it just I think it steamrolled from there. It's, mm. And then we started doing raw together. We used to do it remotely or in my little office yeah. at home or whatever. Yeah. We started doing it properly with the good cameras, yeah. with the right equipment, streaming live four nights a week. Uh, and and that's kind of where it went and went and went to the point where for the first time, we actually didn't get kicked out of the studio. Yeah. We moved ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Because what happened was the flat was great. It was lovely. But the reality is we had outgrown it. Yeah, and, and also, you know, when we talk, people think we're super successful and, and rich and whatever, which we're really not. Like, at the last studio, like, two months ago, we would record the interview in the very room where I would sleep on the sofa. Yeah, you would literally sleep I on was the sleeping sofa. On the, I remember saying to one on, on one of our calls, because we do these monthly calls with our, uh, our top supporters uh, from locals and Patreon and Subscribestar, etc. And I remember saying, you know, I was sleeping on the sofa and one of them laughed. <laughs> He laughed like it was like a joke. A joke, but two months ago, that's what it was. Yeah. Anton had his little room, which was packed with all our equipment. You yeah. could barely walk around it. You had your little room. Yeah. And then the living room, I would sleep in. Yeah. You know, and, and looked was like it. a studio. And it looked like a studio. It and looked like a studio with two bedrooms attached to it. Yeah. And when we wanted to have lunch, yeah. Initially, we ate our food off little stools. Yeah. Then we got like a portable table that we yeah. would put up and then have to get rid of just to have enough space in the studio to put the equipment in. Do you know what I used to do, actually? What? Anton, I'm sorry about this. I shouldn't admit this. Every time Anton went out on a date, I made sure that I put just a picture of Lawrence Fox on his bed just when he came. <laughs> <laughs> you are such a cunt. <laughs> you always have been, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> just bring it, just bring back. Oh, you know, this is so romantic. <laughs> it was bad enough. His room was filled with like lights and yeah. studio equipment and yeah. whatever. Do you remember that? The, not just the going back for a second, that Anton used to carry the entire studio on his back. Yeah. Yeah. In a previous studio, because we couldn't leave anything there. Oh, no. We had to just, he would get all this, and it would be this massive bag yeah. on his back, yeah. and then two little suitcases. Yeah, like a tech turtle, yeah. t- turning up and then yeah. just unloading. Yeah. And then so, finally, we were like, okay, look, we got a bit of a nudge in that they were doing massive renovation yeah. at the old place. And not, we only, like, not only in the, in the building, but also in the road. They literally digging up the yeah. entire road. Yeah. Yeah. So I was having to negotiate yeah. with Polish builders who yeah. could not give less of a fuck. Yeah, but also it was an incredibly rough council estate in East London. Do you remember when Tim Stanley came? Yeah, Tim Stanley came in, we interviewed him, it was all great, and then he walked out and we just heard like a mental homeless man assaulting him outside. Well, no, yeah, but not, yeah, but shouting, yeah, yeah. But no, not literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just Tim Stanley trying to get away. Yeah, and there was... Well, first day we moved in there, you nearly got mugged. Yeah, I did. And then some guy came up to, to my wife and said, oh, do you want to come with me? I'm a nice, clean boy. <laughs> so it was a rough council. It was not the greatest place to, you know, like I, I remember waiting outside for Douglas Murray, just him walking past, looking around. Yeah. But anyway, 
So, and now we've moved to this place where we can have this beautifully designed set for the main interviews yeah. and a separate set for Raw that we're still working on that's mm-hmm. going to be different to what it's been so far. And I think we should talk about, I know we've, we've gone for quite a long time, but I think we should talk about where we're going with the show. And mm. one of the things that I think we were really keen to do, you know, is to bring the idea of honest conversations with fascinating people more and more to the forefront of what mm. we do. Because I think as the show has evolved initially, you know, the name trigonometry, a lot of people are very confused about why we called it that. You know, I think a lot of people think it's about triggering the libs or whatever mm. the people talk about. Actually, it was very much in many ways a trigger warning. He was saying, look, we're, we're going to try and have an honest conversation about difficult subjects and you might find this offensive. That, that It was sort of a defense mechanism almost. And look, we've got to, let's be honest as well. We were all so angry. Yeah, we were. We were angry. We, I was angry at being in, a, in an industry where I felt misrepresented. Mm. I think we both did. Speak, you can speak for yourself, but I've certainly felt misrepresented, condescended, looked down upon, sneered at. All of these things, just because I thought differently. And I was fucking done. So there was a part of trigonometry which was fuck you, at yeah, least for me. 100%. 100%. And I was the same, especially after that contract happened. Yeah. Especially after I realized that actually these other people in comedy who I thought idealistically, admittedly, were, this was my team. And they were liberal, which they're not. Yeah. In the and, old school and, sense and, of the and, world. And they're not liberal. They're no. authoritarians. No. They're authoritarians who want to shut people up. They want to shut down discussion. They definitely don't want you to be allowed to have your opinion. And, and, and by the way, they hate you for being successful. Yeah. They hate you for being successful. Yeah. You know? Um, so there was a big part of it. There was, there was that fuck you initially. And I think you and I have moved on quite yeah. a lot. Since yeah. We don't feel that way. And that's why I think... The slogan of Honest Conversations with Fascinating People is in many ways much more representative of mm. the future direction yeah. of trigonometry than the word trigonometry. Yeah. You know? So you, people will see more of that, I think, coming in. Uh, and eventually, that may even end up being the name of the show. Yeah. I think trigonometry, the show and the, the, the title of the show has been brilliant. And it summed up a moment. But that moment was very much, you know, 2018, 2019... 2020, I think as we want to be moving on, what we want to do, we've always strived to do this, which is bring, you know, people from the left, people who we might, who we disagree with, but we want it to be a more open place for these people to come. But see, I mean, you say that people from the left, people we disagree with. We just interviewed Will Storr, who's on the left. Did we disagree with him? No, 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 no. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so I think we, we shouldn't put ourselves in this trap. I don't think we disagree with people on the left. You are of the left. Yeah. I am very open to a, a large number of important ideas mm. that the left focuses on. I just think we're not on board with this woke nonsense. Okay, so progressivism. Yeah, we're not on, I'm not on board with progressivism. Yeah. I'm yeah. not on board with pretending that things are true that aren't true. You know, And th- that's all I've ever cared about. Our, the thing that unites us more than anything is intellectual curiosity. Yeah. And yeah. we want to get to the truth no matter which side it's on, Yeah, right? Which to me is why the slogan is much more representative of who we are now than, mm. than the word trigonometry. Yeah. And also as well, because emotionally, I'm not, I'm not angry no. like I used to be. I don't feel frustrated. I don't feel unheard. I don't... It would be incredibly hypocritical and duplicitous of me to claim any of these emotions. 
when the reality is that none of that applies anymore. And trigonometry came from us being in that space, feeling those things. Mm. It was a kickback. It had its elements in punk yeah. and all the rest of it. And that's why yeah. when the logo was designed, it had those things it actually woven into it. But I think now as we move on, we want to move past that. Yeah. We want to actually broaden even more the conversation. Yeah. We want to talk to a wider range of voices. Well, look, this is something you and I have always actually been really interested in. I mean, if you think about the three of us and our favorite episodes, hmm. they're not really... There is, we've done some great episodes that are, you know, woke idiots this and woke... Because they are idiots and they're dangerous idiots. Mm. And, and, and we'll continue to point that out because I think it's important. Mm. I think it's important to defend, you know, civil liberties and Western Enlightenment values. They need to be defended. Mm. And if they're not defended, th this world will change in a bad way. Mm. I, I, I feel very strongly. That's why, you know, in my book, this is what I talk about. That's why it's called an immigrant's love letter to the West. It's very important to protect and preserve these things. But in addition to that, look at our favorite interviews there with evolutionary biologists, with scientists, with people who can explain a lot about what's happening in society, not in terms of the culture war, but actually just in terms of how people behave, how human yeah. beings are wired, why they do what they do. Uh, and so that's what I've always seen the future of the show as. You know, A lot of people think that we're just these culture warriors. I don't feel that way at all. No. I feel the great privilege of doing the show is we get to talk to people who are just interesting, who are just successful, who, who have a mindset that anyone in their right mind would love to emulate, that have a, an ability to dissect, you know, and, and, you know, separate bullshit from the truth and yeah. present it in an articulate, interesting way. That's what the show will be about. And, and I, I keep saying this, I don't know if it's true, but I suspect 10, 15 years from now, if the show is still going, which I hope it will be, and I'm sure it will be, we'll be pushing back against people on the right. Yeah. And we do it all the time. I mean, yeah. I, I've just been having arguments with people on the right who, who are going too far, in my opinion, on this obsession with, you know, conspiracy theories about the vaccine. People who say, oh, the vaccine is not at all about health. I'm just going, are you fucking mental? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. There are a lot of things that have happened in relation to COVID that I think are very suspicious and mm. suspect. But let's not go down... The rabbit hole that far no. let's not go into you know retweeting david ike or whatever mm. so i'm going to be pushing back i think against all the people who i just think are just wrong yeah yeah you know and if they're on the right we'll push back against them and if they're on the left we'll push against them and it, but it's like anything once you you talk about a subject too much it becomes hack in order to use a comedy term we you know and it becomes boring and stayed and a lot of what we were talking about in 2018 has now filtered into the mainstream, or is beginning to, certainly, yeah. and now everybody's talking about it. But that's a sign for us as well that there's other things to talk about now, things that are not getting addressed. Let's leave it there, because in the follow-up episode to this one, we're going to talk about the actual issues that we are interested in, what's going on in the world, what we want to cover going forward, etc. Uh, but for now, that has been the past, the present, and the future of trigonometry. Uh, take care, and we'll see you in, in a few days' time with a follow-up to this. Take care, and see you soon, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this incredible interview. Remember to subscribe and hit the bell button so that you never miss another fantastic episode. And if you believe that the work we do here at Trigonometry is important, support us by joining our Locals community using the link below.
Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.